I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Welcome to the Fighting on Film podcast. The podcast all about classic and obscure war movies. From the Normandy landings to the days of chivalry and swords, if it's been captured on film, we're going to try and cover it. I'm Robbie of RM Military History. I'm Matthew Moss of Historical Firearms and the Armourer's Bench. Grab your Uzis, prime your grenades and lace up your combat boots. It's Mercenary Month on the Fighting on Film Podcast. Cry havoc and let loose the dogs of war. Welcome back to Fighting on Film. This week we are joined by a very special guest, good friend of mine, Mr. Vic Tuff, who is a small arms expert, historian, and international arms trade consultant. And he's going to be joining us today to discuss the dogs of war. Thanks for joining us, Vic. Pleasure, pleasure. I've been trying to tout this for much for a while because it's of my era, well before you two guys were born. And it was, it's, it's also has the distinction of having one of my favorite small arms in the Uzi, which I was trained in Israel on an, uh, an armorous course in 1984. So it was all fresh in my mind at the time. So I even brought one along to play with. For the uh, audio listener, Vic just held up a um, an Uzi. <laughs> Deactivated? Or, or oh, really? yes, definitely, yes. It's, it's an Uzi, as my friend Arnie would say. And, uh, <laughs> actually, is a, it's a, semi, a de- de- deactivated semi-automatic one. Wow. Probably one of the ones that we sold back in the 80s. So. Wow. Vic is uh, a good friend of mine. I've known him for years. And uh, we started the, the Armourer's Bench together ooh, back in 2017 now. Yes. Not only does he love a good war film, but he's also one of the most knowledgeable chaps I know when it comes to the Uzi. As Vic mentioned, it, it plays a bloody big part in this one, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. It really does. It's second only to the um, the XM-18, isn't it, really? But we'll get to that. We'll get to that. We're getting ahead of ourselves, gents. So, yes. Robbie, um, do you want to run us through the plot? Yeah, well, I thought first, kick off, when, when we've got them, we like to read them out on the show. So I found a review for The Dogs of War from Sunday, the 21st of December, which was a few days after release, from the Sunday Mirror in 1980. So the headline reads, Real Meat from the Dogs. The Dogs of War from Frederick Forsyth's novel works impressively at two levels. On the one hand, this meaty action film takes a hard look at the mercenaries who take huge risks and earn small fortunes fighting other people's wars. Played with chilling lack of emotion by Christopher Walken from The Deer Hunter, The film also probes the unscrupulous world of the international big business, prepared to overthrow governments in the interests of great goods and great profits. Back in the days when reviews were just literally the synopsis of the film. Pretty much. (laughs) They read it off the poster and that's given the plot away. (laughs) Well, whenever you watch old trailers, it always gives away all of the the good bits in the plot, doesn't it? Christopher Walken, gonna do a coup in Zendero. (laughs) It's always like that. But yeah, the plot, you're thrown right in. South America, 1980, there's a jeep hurtling through the 
this sort of like makeshift airfield unbeknown to the viewer but it's shannon and his mercenary crew they eventually get to a dakota and they fight their way onto this dakota by like moving people out of the way and and they fly off and that scene fades out and then you get family drama for a bit it's a very weird opening to a film but it's very engaging yeah, we cut to a christening, which is a bit jarring, and it kind of turns out that the, the christening is one of the the guy that was possibly was it the guy that was wounded in the jeep, and it's his family, and he's he's going to be the godfather of the child, but then we never hear about that child or the family ever again. Yeah, I think it he's sort of just to get you in, isn't it? The guy's unimportant. It's like there's a couple of those Merc crew that you never sort of see again, because there was definitely like five or six lads in that jeep. We see like three of them again. Yeah, we see Ed O'Neill from like Married with Children and Modern Family. Al Bundy. Oh, yeah, Al Bundy. He pops up and you're like, oh, right, okay. Was he in the Jeep? Is he coming on the mission? No, he's not coming on the mission. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> he never turns up again. So old. Vic, you've read a little bit of the, the source material for the film, which is uh, The Dogs of War by um, Frederick Forsyth. Yeah, that's right. It's, it goes into a lot more depth of that operation, which you see for about five minutes right at the beginning of the movie. Different timeline. It's broadly similar in that it's a it's a failed mission to keep uh, I think what must have been a UN enclave secure, and then they've just decided you know right that's it up sticks we're going to bugger off, mm. and then they get into the aircraft and they're away. Shannon, who's the Christopher Walken character in the movie, in the book he is a, a Anglo Irish. Oh. All of the other characters are either South African, German, French, and Belgian. So there's no Yanks in it whatsoever. But the movie has obviously been tailored to keep it within a, a reasonable time frame. Because if you had done the book verbatim, it would have been an epic six-hour-long film with an interval for ice cream and cigarettes in the middle that you would have never come back from because you would have been bored to tears. I think I almost was at some point during this film. I was crying out for some action. It ramps and it, it sort of builds and builds and builds. And um, initially we get this whole section where Shannon is tasked initially to go out to this country called Zengaro, where a dictator called Kimba has seized power and he's killing his own, you know, he's, a, he's an absolute despot sort of thing. And this shady British businessman tasks Shannon to go out there and do some reconnaissance. It's always a shady, bloody businessman from Britain, isn't it? Yeah, that's very <laughs> wild geese, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. He poses himself, Shannon, as a wild bird photographer for a, a magazine. He gets to Zangaro and there's a fantastic scene. And we'll probably talk about it in more depth later on. I'm a photographer. I'm here for work. And the guy goes, photographer, eh? Brings him into the back room and um, Shannon is fleeced of, of most of his possessions, but we're not sure if he actually meant it or not, you know, because he's a very clued up guy, this Shannon lad. He, he's very smart. He's, he's with it. I have a sneaking suspicion. He, he knew he was going to get patted down. And there's loads of troops everywhere. It, it doesn't look like the greatest place to be. It's all going well for a while, isn't it? Yeah, it's going fine. You know, he's he's having a laugh. He's riding around. There's a weird bit in the jungle where the guy, like, sort of takes him into the jungle because he's nicked his car keys. So Shannon goes outside in the morning to go and do a bit of a recce. And, you know, the, the hotel owners organises him a Jeep. You know, he goes and gets into the Jeep and realises the keys are gone. And uh, there's there's a chap sat on the side of the hotel with his keys. which he, And I think he then assumes that that's a guide. He allows this chap to like, take him into the jungle. Mm. And he's speaking like fluent English at one point. And then as soon as he gets him into the jungle, it's just like he's just talking to himself in Zangaran. He sort of like gives him the slip, but then meets him again on the road and allows him to drive him back in. It's just an unusual, weird scene. Shannon says to him, it's quite important lines. It comes up later on when he leaves. And it's when you learn that everyone's in cahoots. Um, he says, in my jungle, you just be another asshole to the guy. And he sort of looks at him like doesn't understand what he's saying. But obviously you can tell mm -hmm. from the tone that it's not a nice thing. So he drives back. From that scene onwards, everything's not as it seems. You, as a viewer, you're like, oh. Okay, is he being followed? Is he? Do they know who he is? Like, is he going to get out alive? Sort of thing. It becomes more like an espionage sort of flick mm. for that initial part of the movie. It's, it's it's a movie of two parts, definitely. The interesting part about it is the prelude in the book puts an awful lot more meat on the bone and explains to you really why Endine wants um, 
Shannon to go to Zangaro. And it's basically that they've accidentally found a source of platinum because of a survey. And um, it's all hush-hush, keeping it low-key. And then he gets ending to go out and get somebody to go in the country to see, you know, what the state of the, the leadership is. So he's not going there to do a recce for a coup. He's going there to do a recce to see how stable the government is. If the government was going to be there for any long time, then they could go in and try and do a deal. So it's the premise is slightly different, but it's broadly similar. It's kind of hinted at in the yeah. film where, yeah. you know, when he comes back and he reports, he, he kind of says that I think it's ending who asks him, is, is the country stable? And there's kind of an illusion there that they were thinking of maybe working with the government in power, but they knew already really that they wanted to do a coup. The book's interesting and it fills in a lot of gaps that you don't necessarily get from the movie. It's more interesting to, to have that background. And of course, after watching it about 10, 20 times over the years, the plot tends to stick in your head a bit more. But it's interesting to see that it got rid of a lot of the the meat in the centre of the book uh, and condense it down into a manageable um, sort of build-up to the, to the actual attack. So the meat's the bit of them getting ready for the operation. Yeah. Well, in, in the, the book, it's 460-odd pages. The battle at the end doesn't start on page 403. It's over in 20 pages. Much like the films, probably about 20 minutes of action. Yes, I think the film's probably a bit more generous with the time it gives to the to the battle than the you know even the book. The battle actually is more uh, dramatic than the book. The book, it's like oh, they've run off, and a lot of the a lot of the troops and guard troops just drop weapons and bugger off. In the film, the fight, they lose, but at the end of the day, the 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 end is the same. But the 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 end plot is um, is a little different to what it is in the movie i think the movie is actually better than the than the, the book yeah i'll not spoil it that's fine no spoil, spoil away um, <laughs> so, people know what they're getting into i think by now with yeah. us <laughs> so to to cut a long story short we can get into some of the real meaty parts of this film um from the through the alley italian fave scenes shannon comes back and he and he's brutally beaten before he leaves you know it's all it all comes out that everyone's in cahoots. Everyone's working for Kimber. You know, you can't trust anyone there because it's just it would just be impossible to have a coup locally because he everyone's in his pocket. Everyone worships this man as a god. You know, it's it's said a few times throughout the film. Kimber thinks he's a god. Yeah, and he's treated like one. Shannon sees the base um, that Kimber lives on because he's paranoid. He comes out and he's in these like white robes and he looks quite you know godlike. So it. it, it you know, it sets it up quite well. So Shannon comes back and he's been brutally beaten. He's lost his confidence. You know, he's, his, his pride's been taken away from him. Walken's character of Shannon is more believable than, say, I don't know, I'm not picking on wild geese. It's just in my head. Like Faulkner, I don't believe that Richard Burton was a tough merc. But because Shannon's youngish, I kind of believe that he could have been there. He could have done, he could have served in Nam. He could have been Sog. One of the scenes I like that sets up that sort of like backstory of his is, you know, when he's gone to visit his doctor and it, you know, it, he's looking at an x-ray, you've got numerous concussions, you've got, you know, you have a, um, a compressed disc in your back and he, you know, he's very blunt with him. He says, you know, you've probably knocked off a good few years off your life. You need to start, you know, yeah, living your retirement now sort of thing, you know, so you wonder what the hell's he been through. He says, you know, the only the only disease with a D you've not got yet is dead. Yeah, exactly. What a great line. You're going to keep using that line, duck. <laughs> well, it, it's interesting as well in the book that uh, Shannon was never a professional soldier. He was a mercenary throughout. Um, ah. And he got, he sort of started at the bottom by just ending up in a war zone and then getting involved with we'll say shady characters or whatever. And it, it just, it falls into the mercenary uh, trade without having any uh, real professional training. Wow. Which probably means that he sees more action than any regular soldier. With the film, we kind of get the idea that he, he might be have, been, have been with like special operations group in Vietnam. That's what I thought. Well, I think it probably suits the market that it was aimed at, which was probably the US. Yeah. Yeah, well, you got to remember like, 
two years before he he was in you know the the, the big hit uh, the deer hunter yeah you know which is endured much better than mm. I suppose Dogs of War has you know in the in like the sort of like the popular consciousness the Vietnam War only ended five years before the film came out so you know it would make sense for a viewing the viewing public of the movie that would be the big war they sort of would reference in their own heads possibly when they see that jeep going through it. it's very nam like the xm177s that they have you know they're very sog nam aren't they you know in the in the iconography but yeah so ending goes but could we could you could you organize a mercenary force and chris was like yeah sure give me like it can't be done, but give, give me like a hundred grand. <laughs> no, you know, he's like, he's proper, he's dejected at this point, but you know, they end up raising like a million dollars or something to do this coup, just obscene mm. amount of money for like 1980 for a coup. The midpoint in the movie is then planning overthrowing Kimber. You get arms deals, um, you know, men are found. It turns out Endine's going to try and install his own like puppet. Colonel Bobby. Colonel Bobby. Yeah. Played by George Harris, who was Captain Katanga in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, incredible. Yeah, and then you get this quite short and sweet little action scene at the end, and then the ending is Doctor Okoye, who's seen earlier in the film, tending to Shannon's wounds, and he instates Shannon decides that he's going to instate this man as the new president of um, Zangaro, and he just sh- he shoots Colonel Bobby. Again, it's interesting. In the book, the expense is better. So there was Kimber, there was Bobby. And there was a Koya who was a moderate. And then there was two others. They managed to scare off the two others. So there was left with a Koya, Bobby, and Kimber. And Kimber and Bobby um, made a pact that they would come together and throw a Koya into jail, which they did. And as soon as that happened, then Kimber turned on Bobby and exiled him. So that's why he's then got this grudge. And he will come back and replace Kimber um, and Akoya, of course, is is thrown into jail. That's how we. That's how you, Shannon meets him because he tends to his wounds. So that's the backstory, and that's why you now understand why Bobby is an exile, and is he's going to be uh, paid off by the British company, the mining company. So none of that is in the movie. So ending is the bad guy who initiates everything, but in reality, he's only the puppet for the industry mm-hmm. beyond it. So it's it's interesting to, to know those little nuances of it as well. It's the movie that you don't need to read the book. It also makes you think, well, why did they make the movie this way? So I think that wraps up the plot, really. It ends with a famous line by Walken saying, you're going to have to buy it all over again. He walks away and the Mercs drive off and it's the credits. It's got to be the only time Mercs actually get the better hand you know, like the upper hand of of uh, mm. their handler, you know, because normally they just double cross like in uh, Wild Geese and and uh, and a couple of others. But here it's got to be like it's the only time America's turned the tables on mm. on the big company or the government that's that's hired them, and, and he lives to survive and he drives off. You've got to think about it, and if you look at it outside of the plot when it ends, they're marked men because mm. Endine is survives. You've got to presume that he survives. And of course, he'll go back to his boss. And what's his boss going to do? Because his boss was expecting multi-billion dollar uh, profits out of this enterprise, which has now gone completely south. Mm. Um, so where, where is Christopher Walken and his other um, guys that are left? Because Tom Berenger, he got dropped. Uh, yeah. uh, so there's only the, the uh, Belgian Frenchman, um, Michel. There's Derek, the XSES guy. I think that's it. I suppose that's a good point to um, jump in and run through some of the cast and, and yeah, crew on it. Um, so it was directed by John Irvin, um, who had done a BBC adaptation just before this of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. And later on, he's quite well known for um, having done uh, Hamburger Hill in 87. Chris Walken, who had just come off the back of The Deer Hunter. And he'd done lots of like dramatic roles in like um, Annie Hall and stuff, you know, been in stuff that we forget about now or, you know, we mm. go, oh, yeah, of course he's in Annie Hall. Yeah. He's one of those actors that's become a parody of themselves, a bit like De Niro now. You know, we we remember them for like the accent and the look, but we don't necessarily remember them for the good roles they've had. They've become their own character, hasn't he, really? I love him, though. I do love him. His eccentricity, I think, it now is bigger than him. Definitely. 
then we got Tom Berenger, who we just mentioned, um, who, um, you know, this is like six years before Platoon. Uh, we've got Colin Blakely, who is um, in a supporting role as um, North, who is uh, a journalist. You know, he was in loads of stuff in, in the 70s, you know, Young Winston, Medra on the Orient Express, um, Alfred the Great, you know, loads of different things. Lots of things. Winston Shona, who plays Dr. Okoya, who was famously in um, The Wild Geese. Then we've got George Harris, who we mentioned earlier as Colonel Bobby. Uh, Derek Goodwin as Paul Freeman. Jean-Francois Stevin as um, Michelle Claude. And there's a little cameo from, well, it's not really a cameo, but it's a very early role for Jim Broadbent, which is nice to see. Yeah, he's the cameraman. It's really nice to see him. Production-wise, it's um, released by United Artists uh, in December of 1980. Bit of an odd one for a Christmas flick. <laughs> Definite Christmas movie. Definite Christmas movie. Up there with Die Hard now, I think, in the, yeah. uh, in the FOF HQ world. Um Cinematography by none other than Jack Cardiff of uh, Dark of the Sun fame. If you've listened to our Dark of the Sun episode, Jack Cardiff is a monumentally revered and well-respected uh, cinematographer. And the cinematography in this film is just incredible at times. You know, it's so well done. The shot where the, uh, there's a, a rat on some steps and it sort of like skedaddles. And, you know, that's the, the sign that the coup's about to begin. And Really good. Uh, edited by Anthony Gibbs, who edited A Bridge Too Far. And that's our next episode coming out after this one. So there's a great little link there. Um, budget was $8 million and it grossed, um, didn't gross at all, actually. It only made $5.4 So it was a bit of a flop at the time. Um, mm. I never I never really know about those numbers, like whether they're accurate or not. No, I mean, I take, I take, word, I take their word for it. But the, the yeah. thing is now, apparently you half what you get. So they only made about two million. So it would be a flop in today's world. But who knows? With DVD sales and, and video, yeah, sales, it's, hard, it's really hard to tell whether these things are like pop, like successes at the time or not. But yeah, five point five doesn't sound like a lot, does it? Back in the day, of course, there was no DVDs. There was only VHS mm. or Betamax even. And I suspect that it was about eighteen months to two years after the movie came out at cinemas before it even consider going to the tape. And of course, back in the day when you had places like Blockbuster, you would rent them before they would become available for sale. So it, the I think the figures for um, that you're looking at what they gross, they're immediate. They're uh, you know within the first six months of being released, which is not like it is now where you know the merchandising and all yeah, that sort of stuff yeah, is a big payback. There was none of that, none of that back back in these days. Do you remember it being? Was it was it a popular film on release? Well, all the cadets of my unit went to see it. What killed it was the slowness in the middle, which, when you look back at it now, explains a lot, a lot. But it's interesting to note as well that in the US, the US release is twelve minutes shorter than the international release, and it cuts out just about all of the Joe Beth Williams, the um, Shannon's wife ex-wife in the middle of the movie cuts all of that out it has about a 10 second slip of her and i've seen the u.s cut and you think well what the hell was that she was in poltergeist and you think and then it's gone and you think wow what was it about then you see the british release the international release, and it it fills in the hole he meets up with her um they spend a night together and then she doesn't like the fact he's a mercenary, so she disappears again. Well, it, yeah, it's just, it's not super convincing, is it? You know, they meet up, um, you know, everything's quite pleasant for a while. And then, you know, she realises he hasn't changed, which, you know, he never said he had. He's just sort of realised that, he, you know, he's, he's back from Zang, uh, the, the recce mission to Zangara and he's been, you know, been beaten. So he's probably thinking, oh, well, I want to get out now. I can understand why they cut it because... It, it doesn't really add anything to the movie. It doesn't go anywhere, does it? It's sort of... No, it's probably for the trailer. Like they wanted a, a scene where like Christopher Walken's kissing someone. Possibly could be drawing on the the the, the success of Poltergeist getting her in. Yeah, yeah. So I think, chaps, that might bring us on to the alley tally, and I know it's going to be a good one this week. It's time for alley tally on fighting on film. So Vic, uh, every week what we do is we have the alley tally where we discuss 
cool kit or equipment or anything in the movie that's especially like, oh, wow, that's cool. So as the guest, please do go first. What is your alley pick for this week? One of the ones that I liked, and I always thought it was um, it was cool, was the little bit on the on the boat when the Zangaran uh, troops come on board with Ginger, who was obviously the sergeant major who's been training them. Derek, the ex-SAS guy, says, oh, they probably haven't seen anything newer than both action Enfields. You know, they're going to blow the bottom out of the boat with the Uzis. So anyway, they get given the Uzis, which of course is a mixture of Mac-10s and Uzis. Some of them very interestingly mocked up to look like Uzis. Exactly. So they, they cock the guns and then they just spontaneously do walking fire over the target and obliterate it. And of course, then he gives them a Cuban cigar and uh, Derek, the SAS guy, sort of smiles and says, oh, well, Okay, yeah, you're good. Uh, and that was always cool. I like the bit with the um, XM-18s mm-hmm. or Manville gas guns. They're supposed to be so cool and are so old technology. Right, yeah. Nobody had ever heard of them. They were such a, a, an obscure weapon from the 1930s mm. that they can pass off as a modern state-of-the-art firearm. I don't think I've ever seen them in a film before or since. And you could easily just go, that's just a prop gun. Cool. They made a prop gun for the movie. And I bet most people that watched it did think that. But when I saw the brochure, the little page brochure page, it looked so convincing. You know, it looked like something out of a Jane's manual. Oh, I know. Yeah. So Vic, Vic, you'll you'll know all about this. The kind of sales material that you, you know, you used to see, or you still see it. You, see, like, you know, you go to a, a convention, you still see like companies handing out that kind of thing. And it's just a, a, a print off page of, um, some photographs of a guy holding the gun and some stats, and it's like the world's best, you know, that kind of thing. Well, everything's always cutting edge. Of course. Everything is always, it's it's better than anything else. And you read through the brochures. There's one especially that I remember is by Giat for the FAMAS, the bullpup. And it was, that was issued to the French in 79, I think. This was for the civilian version uh, in 222, not in three everything about it was cutting edge which fortunately was correct because it was one of the very first issued bullpup rifles and it 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 was true but then you read other brochures on other stuff and i've got one by psionics for their suppressor range for the mac 10 and mac Mm -hmm. 11 when you see the inside layout you think well it's just for the steel wool but does it work yeah okay fair enough cutting edge world war ii tech there that's right. Yes, yeah. So this this blowback submachine gun that nobody else has designed in the world. <laughs> well, you know, we make a better one. Um, it, it's a sting gun with a different dress. Yeah, it's it, it's it's interesting. But the the one that they, the brochure that dummied up for the XM eighteen, the and which is the Manville gas gun, is quite a good brochure. It is, isn't it? I've got it in front of me. Just before we go on, I'll I'll read you the the first line. It says, "The XM eighteen ER E one R." is an 18-round, 26mm projectile launcher. It represents the ultimate in assault technology. While being lightweight, it is able to launch 28 or 26, it's a bit difficult to make out from the screen cap I've got, uh, projectiles within a five-second period for a distance of 100 metres and beyond, giving one man the capability of launching smoke, gas, or explosive rounds. And it also provides the ability to launch high-impact flushette loads and other anti-personnel systems. Completely legit sounding like blurb there for yeah. any gun. Does it actually say at the end, it's what we in the trade call a mixed fruit pudding? <laughs> yeah. It's what we in the trade call a mixed fruit pudding. And you're like, oh God, okay. Yes. It's interesting because the in the movie, the ones that were supplied, it shows you him loading 26 millimeter flare cartridges, mm. which have all been fired. Good eye, damn, didn't notice that. For the effects. They're all 12-gauge blanks. Uh, okay. They, they made it in various different calibers, including 12-gauge, so the, the firing sequences move between showing a 26-millimeter being loaded and a 12-gauge being fired. That great shot of Berenger on the ship where he gets it out of its box and he, like, turns yeah. that little key on the back of it and he's, like, just, like, woohoo, like, shooting loads of rounds off. It's, it's pretty good. It's the sound effect, which is a ricochet played backwards. But every time that he fires it, and you think, oh, just, it just grates. It really grates. 
A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. I, th- I think it's a great sound effect. It sounds like it sounded right, you know, but I've, I'm not a weapons expert, yeah. you know, but. Well, things, you've got, you've got to remember that things tend to go bang, then we. Oh, yeah. We, then bang. <laughs> mm, true, true. But it's interesting you know, as well that all of the Zangaran troops, most of them anyway, are carrying uh, Australian manufactured L1A1s. Now, did Belize buy them from the Aussies? Ooh. Probably. Or did they get them given? I don't know. They must have done. Well, you would have thought that because we use it as a training ground, they would have been British L1A ones. Yeah, but... imperial pattern rather than metric. Yeah. yeah. In the credits, it says armament supplied by Special Effects Unlimited, and that's a company based in LA, now Hollywood. Yeah. So I wonder if. Yeah, they're quite well known. They're like the American Bapti. It's strange because I looked up that company to see what they had, if they had an inventory. And it seems that now that name is used by a company that does visual special effects. The Manville gas guns were interesting. I've only ever seen one for sale, and that was in, I think, Rock Island auctions in the States. Didn't seem to fetch much money because I think, in reality, they're cheap, cheerful. But it's it's an interesting gun. The design was patented in, in 1935, so it's yeah. an old design, and then it got picked up again by someone uh, during the, during the war. And then later it inspired the Hawk MM1. Right. And then apparently the myth goes that the Milkor was inspired by this after the guy who developed the Milkor saw Dogs of War. How true that is, I don't know. Put that in a brochure. It's like, oh, the, you know, the gun you saw in Dogs of War, re- reborn. You know, you can totally see that in a, in a brochure. So, Matt, your rally pick this week. First of all, shout out to Christopher Walken's flat which every drawer has a you know handgun in so good opens the fridge Beretta Beretta 34 opens a drawer Smith and Wesson opens another drawer it's another Beretta model 1934 he's just packing all over the show and I think you noticed there was a small arms manual on top of the blue small arms manual yeah Smith's small arms of the world 12th edition amazing I think I've got that one somewhere yeah it's (laughs) it's the color of the spine you can tell I think my favourite thing out of the whole movie is when they're about to begin the coup. Uh, Christopher Walken has his Uzi and he has a little night vision sight, which is way smaller than it should have been in 1980 because it's supposed to be like a starlight scope. But it's it's about maybe like three or four inches long. It's it's more like a, you know, like just a standard sort of like telescopic mm-hmm. sight. And he looks through it and you get that classic sort of like film green with a little crosshair. You never see it again in the whole film. He just looks no. through it one time. And then he fits. Then he fits um, his over-the-barrel um, giant suppressor, which is quite clearly like modelled after one of those Ingram Mac Ten ones, Vic. You know, yeah. um, psionic, the, yeah. the big psionic chunky buggers. And but you know, there's no way that that would have fitted just straight onto a flush-barreled Uzi. But you know, it does in the film, and that's kind of cool. Um, and I think him and uh, is it? I don't know whether it's Derek or. Um, Beringer's character. I thought it was Ginger. But he, there's two of them, and they, it might have been Ginger, yeah. It's um, Ginger, yeah, it's across the bridge with them, yeah. Yeah, they, they, they go along the dock and they, they take out like a, a guard post with them, and it's, you know, that's a really cool bit of kit. So I, that, that would be my pick, I think, this week. Oh, great. I like, I like the sound effect you get there till you get it through, like, beep, beep, do, 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 like proper light. It's better than the one that's in um, Codename Wild Geese, though. That, that, that was dire. Uh, for me this week, I'm going to talk a little bit about the kit the guys are wearing. So I thought it was quite an interesting little mixture of kit. So 
Um, the mercenaries, Shannon's mercenaries, mainly have um, US um, M56 pattern webbing, I think. You can tell by the sort of, I don't know how you say it, like sort of suspenders that you wear. Yoke, yeah. Yeah, that's it, the yoke, yeah. But very iconic little look there. And they seem to have either just some sort of generic um, American fatigues or possibly I thought they might have had first or second pattern Vietnam era stuff at one stage. Kimber's men have DPM which was really yeah. interesting. And that would be the maybe the Belize element there. You know, I thought that might be a, a little link to the, the British were in Belize, weren't they, at some stage? So Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then there's other weird kit that the mercenaries have. When they're putting some sustained fire down the barracks, one of the guys has a, a British paratrooper Sten bandolier oh. for a split second, which was really odd. But the one thing for me this week that really... It peeved me off, but it it, enjoyed, it made me jump for joy when I saw it. Let me guess. Was there was a Bedford yeah. M series. But unfortunately, it doesn't survive the film. As we know in these movies, Bedfords rarely survive these films. And it's an absolute wreck at the end. Mm. But it did help me identify it because you can see the chassis a lot better. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but that's my alley pick this week. Some great little personal kit. Shout out to the, um, the 72 Laws, the M72s. But there, there's one other thing that I picked up on. Endine and Bobby fly in in a gazelle helicopter. But I wonder if it's, this is Belize and we've they got a little bit of help from British forces who were training there at the time. And you can see that the military insignia is painted over, but you can read the tail code, which is XZ322. That was demobbed from service some years ago and ended up being an instructional airframe. And it was wow. actually auctioned off this month as a collector's um, airframe. That's incredible. It, it's ex-Army Air Corps. Wow. Is it Freeman, the ex-SAS guy? Yeah. Yeah. I like the way he wears his beret. Very interesting. But I also like it when he gets on the M60. Yes. It's because he just goes mad with it. And all of them do, but you get some nice little reload drills that he does as well. So the, the weapons handling was quite good, I thought, in this They're film. pretty good at the reloads in this film, actually, mm. yeah. i come to think of it. So as Vic was mentioning earlier, you do see them reloading the, the XM-18, the Manville, a couple of times. Like You see um, Christopher Walken like open up the back and he's pulling mm. out spent and he's putting in fresh uh, cartridges. So that's kind of cool. I, like I think that. he also reloads his Uzi as well, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting in the in the book as well that they use they, they say they use Schweizers, of course MP thirty eight MP forties whatever but the, mm. um, that's what they use in the in the book and they've only got five magazines apiece so they've only got like one hundred and sixty rounds if you watch the movie they probably squirt that off in the first minute of the action sequence. You, you don't see them carrying too many magazines. They, you could do occasionally see them at the bandoliers. You see a few uh, mag changes. Um, but the, there's also the, some of the 24-round magazines, some of the 32s. So the yeah. uh, I'm surprised nobody had the L clip on, on the mags as well. Oh, actually, you mentioned that. They didn't have the L clip, but um, Derek did have a jungle mag. Yes. We love a jungle mag on the pod. Blinking, you miss it. I noticed it. I thought, ah, jungle mag, nice. Beautiful. So yeah, you can see, you can just see where he's like taped them up. Taped it up. And it, and it, love yeah. it. Love it. But I yeah, think... they've all gone to the Colonel Faulkner school of um, Uzi um, handling where they don't need ammo. Um, That's right. A lot of centre mass as well, which is always lovely to see. We love centre mass on this show. <laughs> <laughs> Sandy trained them well. Right. <laughs> Vic, fave scene, you go first, you're the guest. Fave scene, I think probably my favourite scene, again, I'm going to harp back to it, is the uh, bit when Hugh Karshai, who's the um, Rick of Casualty, who uh, who is the Zangaran officer, comes into the hotel to interrogate Shannon and to try and trip him up because he says he's a naturalist and he's, he says that... Uh, uh, President Kimber is also um, interested in uh, the natural wildlife, so he'd like you to tell me the, the name of the great crested grebe. And of course, he, you think, oh God, he's going to drop himself in this. <laughs> he, 
if you had watched in the uh, when he was on the aircraft flying and he's reading a book on on birds. Oh, good eye! I didn't even spot that. Yeah, I mean, he's got notes written in it as well. But then he, he says, and he was going to turn away. He says, "Okay, for you." And then he quotes a, the uh, um, the Latin name for the bird, the full Latin name. And yeah. then he brings out another bird. And at this point, drink. And that to me is always the scene that makes me smile because uh, yeah. And Colin Blakely says, "I don't want to drink, but a drink for my father." in that scene I, I think that probably tickles my fancy as the best scene that's a that's a great scene that is one of my one of my favorites as well I, it's just just a nicely paced and walkins having fun with it yeah and it's just like a it's, it's a good fuck you to the you know the the guy and he he's the guy he's the only person you see in that raid at the end that you recognize you know when he gets shot because i think um walking gives him a burst when he walks into like the headquarters building. He stares at him for like a split second. They sort of recognise each other. He's blasting away. It's quite <laughs> satisfying. Um like as a revenge. Cause you because obviously he's been so emasculated by being beaten. Like him being there, being able to sort of bring the fight to them. You see it written on his on his face like in a lot of the scenes. Like I do think as a redemption arc, it's probably one of the better ones in, in Merc films actually. Yeah, yeah, it's not bad. Well, at all. well he also he, he hoses down Gabrielle Drake, who's one of the concubines of, of Kimber, but it's it's her reflection in a mirror. And then he, oh, yeah. he sort of you see him staring bug-eyed at and he's obviously wound right up, but he lets her off. And then she bit of, bit of Jack Cardiff off. cinematography there. Yeah, yeah. good. Yeah. She would have been covered with shards of glass because she's only standing <laughs> six foot from the bloody mirror, but no, <laughs> looks good. Yeah, it's good. Robbie, what about you? My favourite scene. I'll have a couple, but I'll, I'll rattle for them quick. So my first one would be when Walken's doing the planning of like that. He's giving like a little pep talk, little little speech before they all go into battle, and it's just the way he sort of the way he explains why they're there. I think for me, the payoff of the the short action scene for me is like it's merited. It feels more realistic than say, you know, Codename Wild Geese or. or you know, lesser extent, Dark of the Sun, because I thought that was realistic in places. Everything's been ramped up for this this really sort of efficient military operation, the way they've planned it. You know, they've, they've done their due diligence with the weapons. They've mm-hmm. they've really planned it out properly. That's how I felt, well, at least when I saw it. And then you get this sort of really cool little scene in the in the hull of the boat. And Walken says, tactics, fire support, you know, <laughs> we'll bring up the rear. Um, but it's your fight. you got to do it. Like it was my awful walk in there, but it had to be done. It's better than mine, I'll be honest. <laughs> yeah, Kimba, kick his ass. <laughs> Kimba, <laughs> kick his ass. You know, and they're all like, way, way, way the lads, you know. It's a proper, like, rousing little bit. But then it completely juxtaposes with the actual mission because the lads get really stuck in from, like, gear one. You know, they're right in there, gunning people down, you know. They're actually hooting and hollering, like firing off their weapons at nothing, like towards the end. That you can tell they're letting off some steam. Mm-hmm. It's a really interesting because their home life in the really short section, you learn that they're a bit upset with their home life. You know, oh, my wife's on my back, I've got my kids. You know, you can just tell they want to be back. Yeah, there. Tom Beringer's character is a real dick. <laughs> yeah, he is. He's yeah. like, yeah, now I'd have to get now, now I'd have to see my wife get fat, you know, because she's yeah. pregnant. I'm like, what? Fed it, ruin me, you know, like something like that. And I'm like, fucking hell, Tom, like Christ, you know, but they're all getting 100K. I mean, come on, that's life. Yeah. Set you up for life money in 1980. And then my other quick favorite scene is the is the welcome to Zangaro customs check, which I think is iconic. Obviously, I mentioned earlier, Walken stops, he comes in and he opens his case, and there's two packets of Lucky Strikes, Glymphidic whiskey, I think. Yeah, yeah. There's, he's got money from all over the world. So obviously, you know, this this Sangaran customs officer, his eyes are lighting up because he's thinking of exchange rates, you know. He's thinking how much you could probably sell those lucky strikes off for. A Glenfit, it's going to fetch a fair price, you know. But it'll, it's just the way that he takes it all off him, you know. He's like, okay, I'll take this. I'll, I'll, he's taking the money to me. I'll have a little bit more and have a little bit more. You have a little bit less sort of thing. And then he's just like, air custom tax, you know. It's just really cool. It's it's believable as well. It gives that extra layer of authenticity. You know, we all hear the horror stories of people being fleeced that, you know, of countries they don't know very well and things like that. So it's just a funny scene and it, it just sets you up for the sort of, okay, what's the deal here sort of thing. I, I yeah, it kind want... of establishes what Zangara is going to be like, doesn't it? Mm, mm. I think it could actually be a UK customs training movie for Brexit. 
<laughs> I could see that coming. Yeah, perhaps. <laughs> but it's just it's a it's a film I think full of chop full of very well shot and good scenes. I don't think there's any. You know, some of it meanders at stages, but it never becomes. Boring. Yeah, I just wish they were all like tied together a little bit more. Mm. Um, you know, cleanly. You know, uh, a little bit more uh, paced, perhaps. It doesn't flow. It doesn't flow. It can. It can go dead end. Go dead end, mm. and then it'll flow, then dead end again. For me, for what I do currently uh, in the, let's say the arms trade, it's interesting to see the aspect of it and. It reminds me of that time is when I was initially introduced to the officer and it did have that sort of feeling for it. And the, how can you put it, the, the rather sort of old and musty sort of offices, that was true because the, the businesses have been well established years ago. Why waste money uh, on, and the profits on painting the office, just leave it the way it is. It served us perfectly well for 30 years. It's true. It mentioned end-user certificates, um, dangerous goods, uh, movements. Uh, all of it rings true. And in actual fact, it doesn't come across as shady. It comes across as this is the way that business is done and is the end-user certificate is necessary. Whether it was particularly legal and the actual end user was the, you know, the scribe one is another thing. But it, it's mm -hmm. right, and that the book goes into that in spades too much, and it's one of the reasons why the book was described as a handbook for mercenary because it describes exactly what they, they would have had to do. Um, mm -hmm. The movie shrinks it down into a manageable chunk, but it, you can still be left thinking. Well, that took a long while to get there. Two hours long. The coup starts at one hour 36. Matt, favourite scene? My favourite scene is a split between the scene where he's talking to the Canadian arms broker about Sorry. the XM-18. Oh, oh, and of course, the bit where he's, um, where is it uh, Beringer is, is talking to the other import-export guy about the 9mm quad. Oh, yes. Which yes. we haven't mentioned yet. We forgot about The that. infamous 9mm quad. Now, I was sitting there thinking, what, what the hell is 9mm quad? So I, whenever I hear quad, I think quad-mounted anti-aircraft gun because, you know, that's that's what I I would think about. Um, and then 9mm, I was thinking, that's way too small for any, any calibre of anti-aircraft gun. Um, did they mean 90mm, which would be way too big for a quad mount? And then Vic enlightened me. So, Vic, do you want to enlighten the listeners about what nine millimeter quad actually is well apparently when the movie came out and nine millimeter quad was mentioned it caused quite a bit of controversy now of course there was no internet back then you couldn't look it up really quickly and uh, this question would have hung out there for years been probably discussed in soldier of fortune magazine guns review whatever and countless pubs exactly and but it turns out that the most plausible explanation, I'm not saying the most accurate proposal, is that 9mm quad is a round produced by Spear, when Spear used to make ammunition, not just components, that was a plus P plus round. So it's a higher than normal pressure round and then some, so that the, uh, the velocity will be increased and the blowback pressure will be increased which on a blowback submachine gun would guarantee reliability. So you wouldn't short stroke and, uh, and you know, get misfeeds, but you're going to give, you know, it, it's something like an Uzi would be fine. But uh, if you shot that ammunition in a handgun, you'd quickly wear it out or break it. A, a bit like uh, British um, 1Z or 1Z and 2Z ammunition. 2Z was for submachine guns but they only issued 2Z, so it went in the high powers and wore them out. So, yeah, that that is the most plausible explanation that I can find. Whether it's 100% accurate, I can't say, but it's a plus P plus round, not a, a, a round that, say, frangible would break into four pieces. Um, yeah, I've seen that written, yeah. I mean, there is frangible ammunition, uh, and I've seen yeah. a, a, a round that has a bullet that has a crucifix, form on the end it's not cut but it has a, a shape of a, a, a cross 
Um, but no, we have all this hoo ha about them getting. You know, we've got to get nine millimeter quad. We, you know, goddamn it, we need this nine millimeter quad. Gotta be nine millimeter quad ammunition. <laughs> <laughs> and then when you see the cases of ammunition and on the Spanish port being loaded, it's got uh, M14 uh, E1 rounds in, which is twenty millimeter Vulcan cannon ammunition. So you know, the tins are marked incorrectly. So, but you know. Damn, oh, it's to use it. throw off customs, isn't it? That's probably what it is. It's 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 for Christopher Walken's uh, invisible twenty meter twenty millimeter Vulcan. That's what. It's <laughs> yeah. That's right. Yeah. Just in case they get a, a aircraft support, we need this Vulcan cannon. <laughs> Just in case the the XM eighteen yeah. is enough for them. Um, but yeah, so my favorite favorite scene is the bit where they are on the um. They've been inserted. They've fought their way through the docks, um, and then they've come to the the swing bridge of death, and they can't they can't get any further. Like it must be the only um, military operation that's halted by a swing bridge. Um, and you know, uh, Derek and a couple of the lads have to swim across and get the, the swing bridge turned around. Mm. Tell you what, if they if they put one of those M60s on that swing bridge, the coup would have just fizzled. You know, at, at that yeah. you know they would have never have gotten yeah. any further than that. Yeah. But you have to admire Derek that he can smoke across and keep his berry dry. It's regimental pride. That's what it is. Well, this is it. That, that, the shape of that berry is is quite something. It's so it's very unique. I would love to know how he shaped that. Like, what was he? What what did he put it in to shape it like that? Like, it's just, but uh, it's very actually it's very American special forces that shape, isn't it? Like having shipped many berries in my time, you wear them in the shower when you do it. Mm. Okay. Then you have to wear it until it dries out. That gives you a headache. <laughs> so yeah, I, I love the swing bridge scene, and then obviously that the whole set piece is great, um, and they're just letting loose with those XM18s, and they absolutely rinse an armored car with the laws, don't they? They do. Yeah, that's a brilliant scene. They just sit in front of it and form a line, and actually obliterate the thing. Yeah, Beringer hits it with the M8, the XM18 first, and you know that's not enough. That's not <laughs> that's not stopping this APC. There's one little bit that I find. Totally unnecessary in the movie. What the hell are they bothering putting claymores down for? Mm. Oh, yeah. In the middle of the road. Yeah, they got the laws, and you know mm. the, the laws do the job on the on the APC. Yeah. But yeah, the, exactly. I I noticed that, and I've completely forgotten about that until you mentioned it. Why are they putting claymores down that they don't use, and why are they in the middle of the road? We brought them. Let's use them. Yeah. Yeah, that's the mindset, yeah. Would have been funny if they hit one in the Jeep as they try to drive off at the end of the film. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> I suppose that brings us to final thoughts. I think it does. I admit I had never seen a Dogs of War all the way through. I think I caught it maybe on a like cable network when I was little, but because it said the dogs of war and there was no war for a long period of time, I think I turned it off. There's no dogs in this. There's no puppers in this. Where are they? Um, <laughs> Michelle has one. Michelle has one. It's in the back <laughs> oh, of the yeah, truck. Of course he does. Dog. Yeah, that, that's the he dog. Helps him with the cans. That's the good boy. That's the dog of war in the film. Fair enough. But I actually really enjoyed it. I got written in my notes, thinking man's wild geese. And I don't mean that like it's some sort of high you know concept thing but it's just the fact that they it goes through the reconnaissance and you go through the planning and then you get this short little sharp action at the end i felt everything paid off i actually didn't feel i didn't feel wanting at the end i actually thought it wrapped out pretty nicely and i like the sort of ambiguity of them just driving off and leaving the country probably in a worse state than they found than they found it in i quite like that as an ending i know what you mean um it it kind of feels like the wild geese compressed all of the prep down into that one meeting where they stood around smoking and you know there's a little board up mm. like the points into the thing and he goes yeah we're gonna need we're gonna need uh this and this and and you know um don't worry about that bit there we'll sort that out when we get there it's gonna be hardy kruger's crossbow um <laughs> you know all that stuff um but with the dogs of war you kind of get all of the detail and it's it you know it, it's everything from the tracking down the weapons they need to getting the photographs that they need um, to planning who the guys that are going to make up the bulk of the force are going to be, you know, it just, it goes into a lot more depth in that middle section than, than the wild geese. Does. So I know exactly what you mean. 
I think for me, I, although I love the movie The Wild Geese, it's implausible by virtue of the fact that most of the guys in it should be drawing their pensions. The age span of the main players in uh, Dogs of War is right. It, and it's, yeah, that's very true. It's, it, it, it works better, gels better in your mind for realism because it's not far-fetched, whereas Wild Geese, there's some aspects of Wild Geese you just think, yeah, this would be great as a comic. It's more plausible, and like you said, they're, they're, they're more fallible in it. You could see that it was entirely factual, being a story, but it, it just works. It works better because in a lot of ways, they're fallible. Um, whereas in Wild Geese, they just do the implausible, but they do it well. Uh, and I think that's that's how it works. It's always been uh, an interesting movie. If it's on, I'll stop, I'll watch it. Quick question for you. Which is more brutal? Roger Moore force-feeding um, poisoned cocaine to someone or Christopher Walken rowing glass down someone's throat? Ooh, Walken with a glass for me. That was a lot more visceral. Apparently they cut some of that out. Really? Yeah, um, possibly. What, the, the actual, like, torture bit? Uh, no, just the, 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 apparently put more glass down his mouth. Oh, okay. And a, wow. a bit of it was cut because, you know, it's a bit I much. think the, the, the worst aspect of that is actually the Victorian toilet. And where's the attendant? He's given him five bob to go to the pub. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Go and have a darker mild, mate. We'll come back in a bit. What more can you say on Dogs of War? I think it's, uh, I think it is timeless, actually. I think it's um, really, we've held the test of time. I think it's still a good film now. Um, and if any of you FOF listeners haven't, haven't seen it, then now's the time. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I thought um could have been paced a little tighter, definitely. Possibly. Uh, mm. There's, you know, there's some of uh, Jack Cardiff's kind of uh, cinematography magic going on in places, which is lovely to see. Uh, quite well directed but I mean I think as Vic has mentioned like the source material that they're drawing from probably clouded um, the screenwriters sort of um, clarity on what they were going to include in the film Yeah. so you know they needed to pace it so there was some interest at the beginning a little bit of that dark underbelly um, in London you know where North gets killed and there's you know they, they, they force feed his assassin with the glass um, and then you know you you get a little bit more of the uh, um, so sort of like the planning and uh, than the execution let's say you know so possibly it could have been balanced a little bit better on pace but still a pretty enjoyable movie as I say I do I do quite like any film that Christopher Walken's in except for Balls of Fury oh yes, um, yes, yes. which was a train wreck that was a terrible film even he couldn't save that one thanks so much for for coming on Vic no um, problems. I, if you hadn't had me on for the Dogs of War, I would have come around your house. <laughs> he would have done with his deactivated Uzi. Put the feelers on me. Scared me. Thanks so much for coming on, Vic. It's been great having you on. Well, it's fine. My pleasure as well. I mean, like I say, if uh, if you hadn't had me on but for the Dogs of War uh, episode, I would have been very upset because it's always <laughs> been a favourite. It has the link to the Uzi in it when I was in a, a specialist armourer trained in Israel on the Uzi. So I had uh, a, a vested interest in, in getting on for it. Um, exactly. There's a great photograph of you um, in Israel when you were on the armorers course in your video on the, I think it's the Galil. Yes. It was on. Yes. Yeah. I have to get that on the Twitter, won't we? But thank you very much, Vic, for coming on. It's been fascinating talking firearms with you in the Alley Tally. Do be sure to check out um, Matt and Vic's work on the Armors Bench channel if you haven't already. Um, do some cracking work over there uh, follow us on Fighting on Film uh, leave a like a review a comment and whatever you're listening on we'd love to hear from you and we'll catch you again next week when we will be zipping up our Dennis and Smocks jumping out of a Dakota and trying to take some bridges in Arnhem with A Bridge Too Far featuring the pub landlord himself Al Murray so we'll catch you then bye bye everybody Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.